Welcome back to the Hemingway list, talking about chapter 7. Um, are we entirely sure we're reading book 1? I've asked the same question again. Ander, says Swim. The earlier book that George is referring to is Confessions of a Young Man. The Confessions of a Young Man, 1888 in English, is a memoir by Irish novelist George Moore, who spent about 15 years in his teens and 20s in Paris and later in London as a struggling artist. The book is notable as being one of the first English writings which named important emerging French impressionists for its literary criticism and depictions of bohemian life in Paris during the 1870s and 1880s. Cool. Sounds like a way better book than this book, if I'm honest. Um, séance de la collaboration, lol. In French, séance means a sitting and it's often simply used to mean a session. In English, a séance is a meeting where people try to talk to the dead and was the first thing that came to my mind. Edward and George were going to talk with dead people. <laughs> that would be make the book more interesting as well. Um, this was another hilarious passage. I agree, says Tecrific. Martin, leaving to avoid more, endlessly droning on about his valuable criticism of Martin's play was hilarious. I think we sympathise fully. All right. Very cool. Keeping reading now, um, just to make it keep things moving. You know what I mean. Uh, so, chapter seven, part three. And Edward is a beginner and he isn't progressing, I said, and may remain a beginner, for he came into the world a sketch on a book by a great master and was left unfinished, whether by design or accident, it is impossible to say, a delightful study he is, and in the embowered villa I sit, looking into his mind, interested in the unmapped spaces, Australia used to interest me in much the same manner when I was a child, until the young girl came upstairs to tell me it was time to go to the theatre. One knows a single word, Spielhaus. My eyes went to the clock. The hands pointed to four, and from four to five is the hottest hour of a summer's day. By four, the sun, blazing forth from a cloudless sky, was, has sucked all the cool of the night away, and heated unendurably every brick and tile and stone it can strike with a ray. Uh, where was I? With a ray. Even in the shady villa under the lindens, one could not think of the tall gables in the town, the fierce sun beating on them, or of the cobblestones in the streets, without congratulating oneself that Edward's inclinations had been resisted. Those low-ceilinged rooms above the kitchen would stifle on such a day, and I was able to look back on my courage with admiration. It had given me a splendid view of a cornfield with reapers working on it, the sun shining on their backs, that one straightening himself to wipe the sweat from his brow with a ragged sleeve. And while walking through the cornfield, I remembered a letter to Bulot, in which the master says, One thing is certain, I am not a musician, meaning thereby that music was only part of his message. He tell, tells in these words that his art enjoined separation from the drone of daily life, and that is why he chose Beirut, a small Bavarian town getting to get, difficult to get at, but not impossible to reach. 
It had a train service, even in Wagner's time, and there was a sufficient number of dirty inns and lodgings in the town to house the pilgrims. Humanity was an open book to the master, and the hardships he was inflicting on his pilgrims he knew to be good for their good. To be for their good. Excuse me. For it would induce them, in them, the disposition of mind suitable for the reception of the sacramental ring. And while building his theatre on the brow of the hill in the shade of the pines, there can be no doubt that he foresaw the added charm it would be to the pilgrim to leave the town and plod through the glare up the long street, past the railway station, into the avenue of chestnut trees. He foresaw them, pausing in their ascent, leaning upon their staves, and the restaurant which he allowed to be built next to his theatre is a tribute to his perfect understanding of men, for however beautiful his music might be, but he knew that none could listen to it for five hours upon an empty belly. He liked, I am sure, the green-painted restaurant higher up the hill in the orchard close, and must have gone there himself and sat under the trees drinking Krenish wine mixed with cool water from stone jars. The master, who thought of everything, must have foreseen the great charm it would be to walk through the pine wood, seeing beyond the red bark of trees the purple ranges of hills that enclose the great plain, slope after slope rising at evening. And no one too far distant for the eye to follow the noble shapes and all the delicate sinuosities travelling down the skyline. Every shape and every outline is visible between the acts of Valkyrie, Siegfried and Gorundamrung. The village standing in the middle of the plain is often lighted by the last ray between the acts of extraordinary harmony gathers art and nature abandon their accustomed strife and with ears filled with calm exalted melodies our eyes follow the beautiful landscape in which Bayreuth stands. There are off days in Bayreuth when there are no performances and these are pleasant days for rest uh, that give us time to think of what we have heard and what we are going to hear and time to stroll about the town admiring its German life. The town is more interesting than Rothenburg, to me at least, for it is less archaic. One cannot imagine oneself living in the 15th century, whereas one can imagine oneself living at the end of the 18th or the beginning of the 19th. Bayreuth is very yesteryear, so an, as the French say, a foreign word, is a veiled face. The veil is often slight, but there is a veil always, wherever we like foreign words or weakness. The great gables which show themselves against the blue skies at Bayreuth mean more to me than the red-tiled roofs with the dormer windows in Rothenburg, for I can imagine myself born in Bayreuth or growing up in it and living there, seeing the Margrave at his court. It would be pleasant to live under the protection of a Margrave. One asks for the name of the last and wonders what he was like in his skulls. A melancholy building full of tall official portraits and heavy German furniture, surrounded by gardens full of trees in which there is artificial water and swans. The year I am writing of the swans were followed by the brood of singlets, and we used to watch these, not Edward and I, but myself and the daughter of the great painter, one who has inherited some of the intensity of her father's early pictures, a woman loving music dearly and travelling with her husband in search of it. It was pleasant to leave the tale of a town and visit her and to walk about under the sunlit trees or through the town or to visit with her the old court theatre, perhaps picking up Edward on the way there and taking him along with us. He will always 
go to see a building, and though we had both visited the court theatre many times before, it was pleasant to see it again, and she and he and I together admired its pillared front and its quaint interior, German rococo, clumsy, quaint, heavy, but representative of the German mind, and together we admired the gilded cupids, the garlands, flowers, and the little boxes on either side of the stage, in which the Margrave's trumpeters used to appear to announce his arrival, a theatre not intended for the populace but for the court, containing only fifty or sixty stalls, beautifully designed and comfortable withal. The gilded balconies reminded us of drawing rooms. We spoke of the courtly air of the theatre, now forbidden to the mime for many a day, a beautiful little theatre. We said, a theatre designed for the performances of Mozart or Gluck's operas, and I think Edward would have given up some performances of Parsifal to hear Gluck or Mozart out in this day out-of-date theatre. In the afternoon, my friend suggested that to us that we should accompany them to village some six or seven miles distant. And we went there in a carriage drawn by two long-tailed Bavarian horses that drew us slowly but surely out of the barrels along smooth white Roads, everyone lined with apple trees and loaded with fruit. It was a wonder to us how the trees were not despoiled by thieves, so easy would it be to carry away the fruit by night. In England and Ireland or in Scotland, a great deal of fruit would certainly have been robbed, and we asked ourselves if the barbarian peasants are more naturally honest than the English, or if we were merely accustomed that prevented the Wagnona from gathering as many apples as he pleased. The lady's husband, who is a politician, suggested these wayside trees belong to the community, and he is no doubt right, and we accepted his explanation that the honesty of the Bavarian is to be found in the fact that everybody shared in the feud, and this being so, it was nobody's interest to strip the trees. Behold the trees in the long undivided plains stretching away in the foothills without all or hedge, wall or hedge, and we asking ourselves how do the peasants distinguish between the different farms, somebody telling how one of the farmers had called another to admire a fence he had put up between their lands. I'd like the fence, eh, twice as well, if thee'd had not taken in some six or seven inches of my land. In our appreciation of the German landscape, there is to be reckoned our disappointment at seeing nowhere beautiful English trees, ash, elm, beech, and oak. Only the pine, and we, being tree lovers, think the pine a tedious tree. If it can be called a tree, it isn't in our apprehension of one only being intended by nature for what the French call charpentier. No man would care to sit under a pine, and a woman still less, needles underfoot and needles overhead. To us English folk, the beauty of a wood is as much in the underwoods as in the tall tree, and the pine allows no underwood. In a pine wood, one meets a few birds, a goshawk, startled from the branches, flees quickly down the long aisles. The pine is cultivated in Germany, the unfortunate pine, ugly by nature, is made still more ugly by cultivation. Pines cover the lower hills, forming black stains in the landscape and disfiguring the purple. The long-tailed Bavarian horses walked up some steep ascent, trotted down the hill at the bottom of which a pretty brook pearls through on an orchard, orchard, and the village has, was reached at last, built under the foot of a steep black hill on which stand the ruins of a castle. There are paths through the woods, and one becomes conscious of the ceaseless change in human life as one follows the paths to the gateway of the robber baron who lived there three centuries ago, defying Gustavus Adolphus, the Lion of the North, until his castle was battered with cannon. It was unfortunate for Adolphus, unfortunate, it was fortunate for Adolphus that he had 
cannon to battle with, for without cannon he would not have captured it. We came upon a ravine, and on each hillside a wooden platform had been built, the orchestra playing in the pit between, no doubt, as in the theatre of Beirut. We strolled up and down the steep paths, wondering if players we heard were heard from the hillside to hillside, inclining to the belief that human voices would not carry so far, and to put the natural acoustics of the wood to the test, some went to the other hillside and spoke to us, but what play had been acted in this wood? Somebody suggested a miracle play, and leaping at the suggestion, I spoke of the miracle plays in Albemarle-Rogau. Some pious people of your sect, Edward, I said, taking his arm, who would set Asiatic gods against native divinities. My aphorism was not at first understood, and I explained it, how Bavaria comprises two spectacles, the Asiatic gods in the south and the Tyrolean frontier, while the original Rhine gods display themselves in the north at Beirut, Wotan, Loki, Donna, Fro, and the goddess Frika, Erda, and Freya. My remark had some success, and we walked on, wondering how it was that this divination of the deities had not been remarked before. Uh, We all were interested except Edward, who said he did not care to listen to blasphemy. But, my dear Edward, it cannot be blasphemy to tell the truth, and surely the gods that Obermaugal exhibits are Asiatic, and there can be no doubt that the gods that Veruth exhibits are German and Scandinavian, and I pressed Edward to explain to me how a mere statement of fact, the truth of which could not be contested, could be called blasphemous. Falsehood being implicit in every blasphemy. To escape from this quandary, Edward began to argue that the Rhenish gods had come from Asia, too, by the way of Scandinavia, finding solace apparently in the belief in the Asiatic origin of all gods. We laughed at this novel defense of divinity. It is like China tea, I answered, only grown in Asia. Somebody else spoke of Havana cigars, and very soon all the life died out of the argument. We were but vaguely interested in it. What? Uh, what the hell? Ah, for none among us, perhaps not even the youngest, were as entirely free from the thought inspired by the empty platforms. We were all thinking how every generation is but a pageant, that all is but pageant here below. Part of our excursion was already behind us, and in later years, how little of it would be remembered. Such philosophies are soon exhausted, and we sympathised with a lady who was anxious about her daughter and husband. They were walking in the woods, and she feared they might be overtaken by the coming darkness, but we assured her there would be light for many hours still, and whistled the motives of the ring. We returned through the hilly country with the wide, sloping evening above us and apple trees lining the roads, and all the apples now reddened and ready for gathering. We admired the purple crests eliminated by the sunset as millions of men and women had done before us and as millions of men and women shall do after us. Voices dropped and faces grew pensive. We asked if we should ever meet a Beareth again and our thoughts turned towards the great master lying in his grave whose dreams had given us such sweet realities. Too soon over, somebody said, in a few ways Beirut would be deserted like the platforms we found in the wood. The long distance we had come was mentioned, and somebody asked if the pleasure we had received were worth the journey. The answer made to 
this, and it was a woman who made it, was that the journey would be more real in six months' time than it was today. And picking up the thought, I answered quickly, so you think that we must live not so much for the moment, but for the sake of the memory of it? Somebody answered that memory was perhaps half of life, and this was denied. He who cannot enjoy things as they go by is but a poor companion. A poor lover, I interjected, and soon after found myself arguing that the great gift nature has bestowed upon woman is the power of enjoying things as they go by. A great gift truly it is, and sufficient compensation for lack of interest in religion and morals. It may be that this is why women have not written a great book or painted a great picture or invented a religion, some one added. Women are not idealists, said Woodson, speaking of his remembrance of his play, The Heather Field. In the evening we were all going to that house that Wagner had lived in, Wagner, and in which we had written the last act of Siegfried and Gotterundermang. And Parsifal, everyone who goes to Beirut is asked there, if he leaves, a card upon Madame Wagner. Such, at last, at least, used to be the custom. One presented an invitation card at the door and walked about the music room into Wagner's library. Edward was much moved to see the master's books and his writing table. Things interest him more than human beings, whereas Wagner's books and writing table merely depressed me. And refusing to follow Edward to the grave, I sought for a friend who might introduce me to Madame Wagner. A tall, thin woman, nearly sixty than seven, nearer sixty than seventy, very vital, with a high nose like her father's, came forward to me, full of cordiality, full of conversation and pleasant greeting. Lives, lives he, again in her, I said, the same inveigling manner. She casts her spells like her father, and, well, there is no way of telling my impression except to tell the thought that passed through my mind. It was... But how is all this to end? Am I going to run away with her? And when we arrive somewhere, what am I to do with her? A woman nearly 70 years, and I thought, what an extraordinary fascination she must have been when she heard Tristan for the first time and felt she could no longer live with Berlot. It is always pleasant, she said, to welcome to Beirut strangers who come to hear our art. The arrogance of the expression amused me, but after all, music is the art of Germany, just as poetry is the art of England. And feeling in the next five minutes that I must either take her hand or interrupt the conversation, I chose the latter course and asked her to introduce me to her son. She hastened to comply with my wish, but put herself to some trouble to find him. He was found at last, and I was introduced to him. My impression of Madame Wagner is compressed in the am, in the am I going to run away with her, and the same words with the change of preposition and pronoun will describe the impression that Siegfried Wagner produced upon me. The son is the father in everything, except his genius. The same large head, the same brow, the same chin, the same jaw, a sort of deserted shrine, I cried to myself and gasped for words. For words. Van Roy was singing at the time, and I succeeded at last in asking Siegfried Wagner who had composed the song, I do not know, but it should be by Grandpapa Litz. I bowed, thanked him and moved away, glad to escape from his repelling blankness. Shyness it may have been, or perhaps boredom, if we had met at Venice or in London, anywhere except in that crowd, 
We might have become friends, so I was glad to meet him on the bench in front of the theatre and to find him slightly more forthcoming than he had shown himself to me in his mother's house. We spoke about his opera and about Alice, who had translated his libretto, and for a moment it looked as if we were going to know each other to become acquainted, for in answer to my question whether he thought it was of advantage that the musician should write his own libretto, he answered that he thought it was, for while writing the libretto the musician sang his first ideas of the music. Meeting me again in the same seat at the same hour, he asked me why I was not in the theatre, and it only occurred to me to tell the mere truth that I came to Berwick to hear the ring and not Parsifal. Perhaps if you knew the score of Parsifal. I can never know a score, for I am not a musician, but I've heard it many times, and it makes no personal appeal, as do the other works. The explanation was received in silence, and I thought how I might have better explained my position if I had said that, though I recognised Milton to be a great poet. He wrote in vain, so far as I was concerned, but Siegfried's manner checks the words upon one's lips, and the people began to come out of the theatre soon after. We parted all the way to the café. We parted, and all the way to the café, where Edward and I went to have supper, I turned Siegfried over in my mind and understood him to be a man of talent, for he is the son of a man of genius. I must be a man of talent to conduct the ring, as I had heard him conduct it, bearing the last scene of the Valkyrie along with him like a banner, a man of talent, a son of a man of genius, without sufficient vitality to be very much interesting in anything else. His life a sort of diffused sadness like a blank summer day when the clouds are low and he must be conscious too that there is no place on earth where he can lay his head and call it his own. If the physical resemblance were not so marked, I said to myself as we entered the cafe, that little cafe, what enchanting hours Edward and I have spent in between half past ten in the morning amid beer and cigars and endless discussions as to the values of certain scenes and acts of singers and conductors. The year that I am now referring to Parsifal was conducted in turn by Fischer, Mottl and Siedl, Wagner's favourite pupil and disciple. He sat in the far end of the café by himself, and I often wondered why his society was not more sought after. Although he was an old man and in declining health, it was a pleasure for me to sit with him and engage him in conversation, telling him that under his direction the first act of Parsifal played ten minutes quicker than it did in under Mottl, and that Mottl was five minutes quicker than Fitcher. So much as that. Yes, I took the time, and how much better I like your conducting of the Flower Maidens. Mottl gets a crescendo in the middle. Whereas there is no necessity, it goes as well without, doesn't it? A thin, spare man, quiet, speaking, but little, a kindly man, as the reader has already guessed from the few phrases exchanged between him and me, and an unassuming man apparently taking a pleasure, even in such appreciations as Edwards and mine, a man between sixty and seventy at the time I am speaking of, and as I write this line I can see his small, refined features, and his iron-grey hair, which once must have been black. My thoughts pause, and I like to indulge myself in the regular regret that I did not walk home, with him in the evenings to his lodgings. He might have asked me to come to see him in the morning, or and over the piano perhaps would have told me many things regarding his relations with Wagner and his understanding of the music, and things about himself, for Seidel moved among great men and was easily inveiled in the confessional. He died a year or two later, and the cafe is no longer as attractive as it was when all the actors came down from the theatre to eat their supper there, 
Klafsky was my first Brunhild. When he she died, Gold Brunson took her place and the moment she came into the cafe all eyes went towards her and I may say all hearts for very soon a beautiful smile would light up a round rosy very ordinary face suffusing it transforming a plain woman into one to whom one's heart goes instinctively convinced that all that is necessary to be happy is to be with her that's the end of chapter something seven thanks for listening see you tomorrow